If you would, please open your Bibles with me to chapter 10 of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 10. In our passage today, we see Jesus leaving Galilee and starting to move towards Jerusalem and the cross. In his intense training of the twelve, Jesus has just laid out several responsibilities on discipleship, which apply to every believer in Christ. The first one was the responsibility not to cause others to sin. The second, the responsibility to do whatever is necessary to deal with our own sin. The third, the responsibility to live with suffering and sacrifice. The fourth, the responsibility to live as salt in this world. And the fifth, the responsibility to be at peace with one another, especially here, including the other disciples. That's how chapter 9 ended. Now in chapter 10, Jesus ends up east of the Jordan River in a land called Perea, where John the Baptist has, had been executed by Herod Antipas for what? Denouncing Herod's marriage with Herodias. Do you see the connection yet? Maybe It's interesting that the Pharisees show up to test Jesus specifically about marriage and divorce. Perhaps the Pharisees were trying to maneuver Jesus into a similar fate with Herod Antipas. It's possible. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark 10, 1 to 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Well, first, let's try to understand what the controversy is here. What's going on? There was a controversy raging in Jesus' day between two rival rabbinical schools over the interpretation of a passage in Deuteronomy 24 dealing with divorce. The crucial part of that passage that the Pharisees look at here is the first part of verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 that says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, etc., etc. Rabbi Shammai and his followers took a rigorous or narrow stand about this, saying that some indecency, that's the key phrase, was the only ground for divorce, and some indecency meant some grave matrimonial offense, something unseemly or indecent. Rabbi Hillel and his followers held a very lax view, saying that some indecency meant for any cause whatsoever. This included a wife's most trivial offenses. If she was an incompetent cook, burnt dinner, etc. If she didn't look good enough to him anymore. If she, was, if she embarrassed him in front of his friends in public. If she, there's sometimes a reason wasn't even stated. The ifs just go on and on. Well, you can imagine which view was most popular. Maybe we ought to add most popular among the men. Even though there was a debate going on, the Pharisees wanted to know which side of this debate Jesus was on. The righteous or narrow side or the lax side. But Jesus, as is usual completely turned the tables on these Pharisees. The Pharisees' question was, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any causes, not in Mark, it's in Matthew's account, which is important because we need this full picture. Um, There's a way to, to understand this, Mark wrote mainly to Romans. This wasn't an issue for them. Matthew wrote to Jews, and he gives us this phrase that explains the gist of what the Pharisees were really asking. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that's in Matthew chapter 19, last part of verse 3. Well, Jesus answered this in three parts. And so we're going to try to look at each part and see why and how he takes the Pharisees' misunderstanding of Scripture literally to task. In his answers, first, Jesus takes the Pharisees to the Scripture passage in question in Deuteronomy 24 and just ask them a question. And then secondly, and most importantly, he then takes them to the creation account. In Genesis 1 and 2. 
And in doing this, Jesus focuses on the creation of human beings as male and female. And notice, that's it. Nobody gets to decide what, who they are, one or the other. We don't need to go into that all today, but I think we need to mention it. We live in a crazy time. Secondly, in doing this, Jesus focuses on the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, by which a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's also important to note that marriage was established before the fall. That's important. Third, what does Jesus do? He then, after teaching and briefly explaining each foundational and applicable portion of Scripture, Jesus reiterates how seriously marriage should be viewed, saying that with one exception, which is again given in Matthew's account, all remarriage after divorce is adultery. And as we will also see today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul adds another exception category for a special situation. So that's basically an outline of where we're going. Back to Mark chapter 10, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Here in the first part, Jesus explains why Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, is even in the Old Testament scriptures. The focus of the Pharisees' argument is over the very first part of verse 1. In Mark 10, verses 3 through 5, we read, He answered them, What did Moses, com- what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus attributed Moses' regulation, which was from God, about divorce to the hardness of people's hearts. By saying this, Jesus did not deny that this regulation was from God. He did imply, however, that it was not a divine command that you had to divorce if there was some indecency. But only... This is only a divine concession to human weakness. And notice that Jesus does not even address right here the issue of what the Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 phrase, some indecency, is or what it includes. He doesn't talk about it at all. Instead, he just recognizes that divorce for the proper reason or reasons, is allowed. This does not mean it's always necessary or right. 
But the Bible does recognize and regulate divorce. In other words, certain provisions are made for it. The question is, are we willing to abide by those provisions and concessions? Also, people who divorce for unbiblical reasons or unbiblical grounds must not be easily excused as if no sin was committed. But precisely because wrongfully divorcing is sin, it is forgivable. Do you realize what you're saying if, if you don't agree with that? You're saying that divorce for wrongful reasons, is the unforgivable sin. It's worth thinking about. In other words, we can neither wink at divorce or summarily denounce it. I think most of you realize how true that is, either from your own personal experience or someone close to you. This is not a flippant discussion. Part two that Jesus does here, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds of divorce or for it. And Jesus focused instead on the institution of marriage itself in verses 6 through 9. So Jesus then immediately refers to the original purpose of God. And he says, but from the beginning of creation... Etc., etc. I don't know whether you appreciate this. You should. In the midst of discussions of grounds and no and this reason and that reason, if you have somebody that can take you back to the original purpose and explain it from that point forward, you are blessed. Too often, nobody even tries. It's trying to win the argument. Jesus knows that once again, the Pharisees, it seems like every time, the Pharisees have lost sight of the big picture. They are legalists at heart. All they want to know is the detail for an excuse or to maneuver in a position that they want to be in. And this big picture is of the foundational purposes for creation, including what marriage is the biblical definition, which he gives as he quotes it. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I believe it's important to note right here that Scripture does not ever say that every single person on the face of the planet is meant to be married. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who was not married, wrote a whole lot about God's calling for some people to be single and even the advantages of that calling in this world and the grace that God provides for them. And he also explained 
as a single man who was God-inspired God's design for marriage in several places. The best known is probably Ephesians where he compared the relationship and used it as an illustration of what? Christ and his church. Now this definition from creation, from the creation account in Genesis, implies that marriage is designed to be both exclusive, one man, one woman. The two shall become one flesh. And it's meant to be permanent. Hold fast, cleave to, be joined to his wife. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the design. It's meant to be exclusive and permanent. Whatever state you are in, we need to know this in our day and we need to be willing to explain it with grace. And I hope every single one of you knows that. No matter what your background is, no matter what your history is, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you need to be willing to stand on this truth in a way that opens people's eyes to God and his purposes and his design. And be gracious in doing so, but be willing to stand on it. And be willing to suffer the consequences of that stand. Jesus takes us back to the origins origins of marriage, and he reminds us that marriage is a divine institution That's a wordy way of saying what? It was God's idea. It was his purpose. By which God makes a man and a woman into one who decisively and publicly leave their parents. Just letting that sink in a little bit. In order to form a new unit In society, they become one flesh. Marriage is not just a sexual union. But marriage does authorize sexual relations according to scripture. And folks, nothing else does. Nothing. And our culture... I think we don't have to say almost anymore. I think it has completely forgotten this. And why is this important to note here? Can you answer why? We need to be able to. It's important to note here because in God's original design, Marriage was a gift of companionship and can rightly be described as a covenant of companionship. Covenant. You hear the word a lot now. What does it mean? Covenant is not a plan F of a contract. When God made His covenant to us, 
specifically to one person in the Old Testament at first who was sleeping during it. Now that ought to tell you something right there. That's on purpose. As God passed through with fire. It's where each person getting married promises covenants to complete and fulfill what they promise in spite of what the other person does. You got that? A contract is an easy way to get out of something if somebody doesn't fulfill one of the terms. And so it looks like that. So what does everybody think marriage is today? A contract. It does have elements, but that's what, when things get tough, what's the first thing that happens? People look for the way out in the contract. Okay, so basically a covenant is a promise that you're going to do what God wants you to do in his strength in order to fulfill your part of it to this person you're married. Except in marriage, both people are actually awake, I hope. Carly and Jerry were awake yesterday. It was beautiful. And they make this, and who witnesses this? All the people who are there, but most importantly, God. And the saddest thing to see in any marriage is this lack of oneness, this unity. And another way to say that is a lack of companionship. So, marriage is a formal covenantal arrangement between a man and a woman to become each other's loving companion for life. The covenant they make includes this very important idea of keeping each other from ever being lonely so long as they both shall live. Just think how many arguments would stop if we just remembered that first. All of us married people in here. In Proverbs 2, verses 16 through 19, a son there is encouraged to seek wisdom so that he would be delivered from the dreaded forbidden woman. The adulteress who forsakes the companion of her youth, catch that word, and forgets the covenant of her God. You got them both right there in that one verse. Notice how forsaking the companion of her youth is parallel with forgetting the covenant of her God. And this is a perfect example of a type of of Hebrew poetry which equates two things while expressing different aspects of one subject. In other words, forsaking a companion, husband or wife, equals forgetting the marriage covenant. And in our passage today, Jesus is drawing us back to the original, which we need to do often. Yes, a man and a woman in marriage do covenant to provide for one another in many areas of life. True? But these goals are part of the larger goal, to live together as companions in order to take away each other's loneliness. Why have I said that twice now? 
Because God does in Genesis. We must remember that the one flesh here in verse 8 is described a different way in Genesis. The phrase helper fit for him, help meet, is used in Genesis 2, 18 and 20 to describe the female that God makes for Adam. It means appropriate to, corresponding to, or approximating at every point. So if you describe your spouse, if you're married, as your other half, it does convey in a slightly humorous way the idea of Genesis 2 very well. Then the Lord said in Genesis 2.18, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. You see that any different than what you have before? Each spouse fills out the life of the other. They can rightly be called a team. United in every way, hopefully. Helping. United as companions in their effort. Working for common goals, no matter how delegated getting their gets. Having an interested party, partner in whatever. Especially for Christians, working together for the Lord in whatever you do. However he's gifted you. However differently he's gifted you. Supporting that. Seeing every job, every moment as an opportunity to be an ambassador for God's grace and truth. How about something simple? Having your mate to talk things over with. Confide in. Share your joys, perplexities, ideas, fears, sorrows, disappointments, frustrations with. On and on and on and on. So sharing your life and your Savior with this person and holding fast to one another for as long as God grants. This is the point that Jesus makes by pointing back to creation before he even gets to the divorce question. Taking us back to God's purpose and design for marriage as an exclusive oneness of companionship that lasts for their life together. So then Jesus gets to their question, which they obviously are not ready to handle. Mark 10, 10 through 12, and in the house, you notice in the house, after he taught it, they're kind of back alone. So it's time to ask Jesus what's really on their minds. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And you should be aware that Matthew's parallel account includes this exception clause that is not Mark. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, so the immediate question is, why the difference between the Gospels? John Stott explains 
explains this pretty simply. And believe me, if you've ever researched this question, to be able to explain it in two sentences is almost in the category of a miracle. It seems likely that the absence of Matthew's exception clause from Mark and Luke is due not to their ignorance of it, but rather to their acceptance of it as something that was taken for granted. After all, under Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. So nobody would have questioned that marital unfaithfulness was a just ground for divorce. The word for sexual immorality here in Matthew's exception clause is pornea, which means, when applied to married persons, illicit intercourse, which may involve adultery, homosexuality, etc., etc. It's a word that can be used to cover all sorts of sexual sins. And all of these were originally punished by death under Mosaic law. Now, in Jesus' time, there was this entity called the Roman Empire, which had occupied this area of the world. And the Romans were known for their incredible legal system, and their legal system had made the death sentence for such offenses difficult to obtain, almost impossible. Jewish practice had therefore substituted divorce for death. Is everybody following this? So this argument between the schools of Shammai and Hillel was not about whether divorce was permissible for adultery. It was taken for granted by everyone as appropriate already. They just wanted to know how much they could get away with. Burnt toast? See ya. Not attractive anymore? See ya. Talk back to me in public? See ya. Can you see that? Yes, these guys were that brittle. The point is that Jesus was far stricter than Shammai or Hillel. Why? Because Jesus superseded the teaching of Deuteronomy 24 and said that only ground, the only grounds by which one could divorce his or her spouse was sexual immorality, an offense that was originally punishable by death. In other words, if you divorce for any other reason and remarry, it's you who commit adultery. And his apostles are flabbergasted. We should think of this in terms of an unfaithful lifestyle. A spouse who refuses to repent and turn from their adulterous ways. A genuine Christian must view his or her marital relationship as what God says it is. Something supremely sacred. Nothing can sever it but unrepentant unfaithfulness. What you would want to see was a broken breaker of this law. 
who is broken, repentant, and asks for forgiveness and means it. And even then, it's not an excuse to divorce. But a sorrowful, the only way you can say it, it's a sorrowful ground of divorce. The church must be very careful in our day not to go along with current cultural ideas and therefore trivialize marriage into a provisional sexual union that dissolves when our little bit of love gives out or we don't find fulfillment or we're just getting bored. And we've got to stand there and be loud about it. Now that we've looked at Jesus' teaching, does the Bible say anything else about divorce? Well, yes, it does. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 16, the, the Apostle Paul gives very important instructions there, first to the unmarried in verse 8 and 9, and then to married believers, verse 10 and 11, and finally to those in mixed marriages, those in which one's spouse is not a believer. And he is writing the inspired word of God. His opinion here counts as the inspired word of God. And this last category here, this mixed marriage between one Christian and one not is where we're going to focus because there is a new teaching here that Christ did not address because he was addressing a specific question from the Pharisees where this didn't apply at all. As the gospel spread like wildfire, there were many marriages in which either the husband or the wife had become a Christian after marriage, thus producing a pagan Christian marriage. And there's probably more people in here than you even know that started off marriage not being a Christian. And then one did, hopefully both, but we know that this happens often. So what are you supposed to do about this? Ah, ask Paul. That's what was happening in the early church as the gospel spread, as God drew people to himself. And then the Christians went, oh, what in the world should we do about this? I'm living with this person. I, I love them, I think, yes, but, but they don't know God. What am I supposed to do? And so what was Paul's teaching? First, that the Christian should not leave his or her unbelieving spouse. The reason is in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 7. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That does not mean that they have become Christians by osmosis because they live in the same house. It means that because of the Christian's presence, the whole household is set aside as being a place where grace is seen and administered, and hopefully that will happen. Everybody got that? Now, how do you respond to that? 
In other words, the reason for staying together is that the unbeliever will be influenced toward Christ. And also the children by the life of the believer. Can you think of a higher calling? A person that's in that situation, their mission field lives within their home. And how they live and how they trust God in those situations speaks volumes to the other person. But we tend to think the other way, don't we? That the believer will be corrupted by this unbeliever. But Paul says, usually, not always, maybe not even most most of the time, but generally it's the other way around. It's God that indwells the person who belongs to him. His power is beyond us. His ability to transform and work in people's lives, we constantly underestimate. So take heart. If you're in an unequal union, your faith can prevail. Though sadly, sometimes, not always. How do we know that? Because of verse 15. 1 Corinthians 7. This is the new teaching. But if the unbelieving partner separates, and if they do, which is not said here, it should be because of the way you love Christ, not because you're being a jerk. Everybody got that? But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if the unbeliever deserts and is determined not to come back, then the Christian should let him or her go, and the Christian is not enslaved. This means that the unbeliever has broken the marriage bond, and therefore the believer is free to divorce and remarry. The consistent use of the word enslaved here and elsewhere argues that is not enslaved means is not bound in marriage. And that's just the plain sense of the passage. You have to do a lot of gymnastics, wranglings to make it say something else. So a quick summary. The Bible allows for Divorce for two and a half reasons. Yeah, I added a half. You'll see. First is sexual immorality. The second is desertion of a believer by an unbelieving spouse and possibly the desertion or abandonment of a spouse who has shown no real spiritual life and therefore their claim to be a Christian is seriously questioned. That happens all the time. In other words, somebody leaves, they claim to be a Christian, everybody that knows them that is a Christian is going, I don't know about this. It sure doesn't look like this person is. Well, that would be the half. They're probably not. But what is a Christian supposed to do? Let them go. Not make them go. You're not supposed to do that. Let them, if it's them that wants to get out of it. 
The Bible allows for remarriage in three instances. When one's spouse is guilty of sexual immorality and is unwilling to repent and live faithfully with their marriage partner, divorce and remarriage are permissible. And when a believer is deserted or abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, divorce and remarriage are permitted. The marriage bond is broken. It's the whole point of being broken. It's over. It's not the original design, but it's over. Well, what about when someone has been married and divorced before coming to Christ? I personally believe remarriage is permissible and that the gist of Paul's instructions here allow it. Otherwise, it falls into that category of an unforgivable sin which Christ makes much of that that there's not one that's legit besides never coming to belief in Christ. And I think we we need to consider that seriously. Now, the role of the church in all this is vital. Those of you that are members in this church, I hope you never have to face anything like this, but we have before. And I cannot imagine going through anything like this without the church playing a vitally important walking alongside role. And if you're not a member, that's not a privilege that you're guaranteed. So the local church should be who this person goes to if this happens. To help when things go awry. Or to come alongside you to work through the sometimes long and painful process of ruling on the merits, if any, of divorcing and remarriage. That almost sounds anti-American. Each of us can do what we want, no matter what any legitimate authority says. Not if you belong to a Bible-leaving, solid church full of sinners who are redeemed by Christ and have leadership that is trying with every ounce of their brains, hearts, and spirits to walk the right direction. You need to pay attention to them. And I hope you heard that you need to. The goal is always reconciliation, but since... God does permit divorce in certain cases. There are very important issues to work through biblically. If you're involved in one of these ticklish kind of situations and issues, or if you're in a state of in-betweenness, of which so many people are now, hard places to be, it's important to fulfill the obligations that God does spell out to you. And the church is here to help that, and especially to, to the members who to intervene in that process. 
In fact, the duty of the church you belong to is to go through the process and actually make biblical determinations to lead you through it. It's also your obligation and duty as a member to seek and cooperate with the church's leadership in that process. God wants his children, those he bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, to be free to love and serve him and enjoy him as much as possible. But we know that we live in a messed up sinful world that's getting more complicated all the time. And if you try to go through these kind of things alone, you are asking for personal disaster quicker than you ever dream possible. So may we all recognize God's design and his purpose for marriage so that we can be lights to this lost world we live in and offer hope and support to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do that by dealing with these issues in the ways or ways that God says to. And hear this. We do that no matter what the world around you says. No matter what your in-laws, your parents say that don't know Christ. No matter what your best friend said 20 years ago. No matter what your neighbors think. No matter what you read on the editorial page. That's where we've got to stand. Please bow for prayer. Oh, Lord, it's, it's passages like this that, again, show us our deepest needs, our misunderstandings, our, the hearts that are bent to want to compromise, just to, to not stand out. We don't, we don't want to become glowing red, blinking lights in a culture that calls us names and and separates and uh, is doing more and more to make us feel what it's like um, to be standing on your word, knowing, knowing you because of your gift to us of Christ Jesus. But we know that Jesus is sufficient for every need that we have. And whether we're married or single or no matter what stage of life that we're in, we know that you can be counted on, you can be looked to, you can provide answers for the next step or steps. We pray that you would be honored through the church who is your bride, that we would be faithful to look to you, to ask the right questions, to have wisdom, discernment that honors and brings glory to you in all things. In other words, God, we pray for your grace and your mercy as we think about and as we come alongside and live through these kind of the hardest situations really in in life. It's on that note that we we in this service today we pray for you for your mercy for us. We pray especially for your mercy for Kelly and James. We ask that you would provide exactly what she needs 
and that you would give her a sense of your presence right now, the rest of today, as they're working on the plans to fulfill, to get, get her somewhere else to take care, that she would know that presence, just of, of your comfort, your love, your care. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? This is from Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. You'll notice it sounds familiar to another book, another passage we use. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Amen. You're dismissed.